Hello everyone and welcome back to the Film Score Podcast. Today I'm going to be covering some of the best and most notable and my favorite scores from October, November, and December 2022. Yeah, I know it was a month and a half ago, but bear with me on this. It's actually going to be a busy month for me. Three interviews, this, and then, hopefully, quick podcast, quick episode on my favorite scores of last year as well. Maybe I'll take a deep breath when all that's done. But first, given the season, I wanted to mention the BAFTA and Oscar nominations. So, of course, there's ten slots between the two. Oddly enough, there's only six scores between them. The only difference being that Alexander Desplat's score for Pinocchio is nominated for the BAFTAs, and John Williams' score for The Fablemans is nominated for the Oscars, and the other four slots are exactly the same. And it always interests me seeing that much consensus build, what feels like so quickly, because the nominations themselves were announced quite a bit ago, several weeks ago at this point. I was pretty happy to have been able to interview two of the six nominees, and I actually had a chance to interview a third one, although, unfortunately for this podcast and you listeners, I am not able to spend all of my time on this, so that interview had to go by the wayside. Won't name names, I'll, I'll let you speculate and let your imagination run wild. Interestingly, five of the six nominations were released during this period. The only one being left out is Sunlux's score for Everything Everywhere All at Once. So that means that Volker Bertelmann's score for All Quiet on the Western Front, Carter Burwell's score for The Banshees of Inishirin, as I mentioned, Desplat's score for Pinocchio, William's score for The Fablemans, and then what's probably the front runner, Justin Hurwitz's score for Babylon, all came out in this period. It's no secret that there's a benefit to having releases coming near and near the year end for critics' attention and then an awards contention and attention. But it's interesting just to see how effectively that played out. And although I think the odds for Sunlux are probably pretty good, it was certainly not a score that anyone expected going almost a year back now, I think it came out in March of 22, that it would have this shot. And really the same with the film as well, that it was going to have so much awards attention and awards possibilities. Had they known that, maybe we'd have seen a different release strategy as well. And for ease, let's cover those five scores first. So The Fablemans by John Williams, in, in one sense it's surprising that this received an Oscar nomination simply because of the amount of outside and non-original music. There's a lot of classical cuts in the film on the score release, and normally, and by the Oscars rules, that disqualifies it. But... As we've learned, as should be clear and should not be a surprise, the Oscars don't hold themselves to their own rules. With someone like John Williams, he's gotten, this is what, his 54th nomination, something unreal like that. It isn't a surprise that they took this chance and gave him a nomination. And it's a really great, somewhat stripped-down orchestral score from Williams. That first cue in particular feels really nostalgic. The opening piano, really. It's kind of like 
sitting down, opening up a photo album, and having a rush of bittersweet memories hitting you as you know that that first page and each subsequent page is going to bring the past alive. And that's really what William's score does. And there's maybe 20 minutes of it, and yet in those 20 minutes, it feels like it creates a childhood for the listener, one that, of course, isn't real, it doesn't exist. It's a a fabrication, it's things that you haven't experienced, and yet, in that time, the fiction of it, the falsity, completely goes away. And it's really striking how impactful that is. Maybe not the case for everybody, but it certainly was for me. The other single nominee is Alexander Desplat for score for Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. This is actually one that I thought was going to be an awards frontrunner, so imagine my surprise when it made the list for the BAFTAs, but not for the Oscars. And it's something that also travels in youth, but I think more so a, a youthful naivete, channeling that feeling that Pinocchio has of wanting so much to be a real boy, to experience things that he expects a young boy would, to have those adventures. And Desplat really brings those to life, but he also adds a lot of a lot of youthful magic to it as well. And it creates a sort of adventurous fantasy world, the type of thing that as a young child, you you imagine for yourself in your backyards, in, in the woods, in a park. And it creates this world through sound that comes to life. There's also a, a tinge of darkness throughout the whole thing. But of course, it's a del Toro piece, so of course there's a little darkness. The winner of the Golden Globes, and probably the frontrunner for both the BAFTAs and the Oscars, is... Justin Herbert's a score for Babylon, and he's really carved out this niche for himself of jazz. That's why I think First Man was quite an exciting departure for him, although I don't want to dredge up the memories of uh, those bad memories of it being snubbed a couple years back. But it's such a lively, fun score that it creates an energy that runs through you. It's almost unbelievable the excitement that Herwitz is able to channel. Listen to Voodoo Mama and tell me that you don't want to move just a little bit after that. And it's also a massive score. I want to say it's about an hour and a half, and there's quite a bit of themes running throughout, but beyond just the thematic work, it's dense. There's a lot to unravel, there's a lot to explore, and I think that can be quite daunting as well but it always comes back to one or two particularly main themes. Now, I've heard some complaints that it is anachronistic, that it's not the style of jazz that would have been at that time. And I go back and forth on that. I think it works, and I don't think that it's necessary to stay true to the sound of a particular time, even when the film itself is set in that time. A similar score... Another of the double nominees is Volker Bertelmann's score for All Quiet in the Western Front. In the very initial cue, a few minutes into the film, really shows just how effective and, and I don't even want to say forgivable because that makes it seem like it's committing some sin, but how well something anachronistic works. The 
most notable aspect of Bertelmann's score is this three-note motif, and it sounds like this hellacious siren that the heavens, the earth, are all about to crumble, and everything that you know and that you can imagine will be just destroyed. That the worst onslaught is a moment away and will utterly annihilate you. And it sounds really electronic and makes it quite jarring. But what Bertelman actually did was take his grandmother's harmonium from the early 20th century and then play it through a giant amp stack, giving it this unreal, otherworldly sound. And so it balances the period appropriateness also doing something absurd. It really plays against expectation, but I think it also feeds into the idea that World War I is the first modern war, because there's a lot of sort of rumbling, electronic, almost industrial sounds backing that main theme. And the first time you hear it is on a battlefield, and then it gets into the German war machine, and you see the industrialization the assembly lines, how this is a machine for war, and suddenly the idea of something that feels more electronic, feels more industrial, and I use industrial in more of the literal sense rather than the musical sense. There's a lot of what feels like machinery going on in the music. It then seems more fitting than playing something orchestral, something romantic with a capital R. But it's a really bold choice, and one I know that didn't necessarily sit well with everybody. And the last of the double nominees, and the last of the five nominees released in this period, was Carter Burwell, his score for The Banshees of Inishirin. I felt really lucky that I was able to interview Carter right before the voting window as well. So, if he wins, he can send me a, a little fruit basket or something as a thanks, because I'm sure that'll have been all my doing. And similar to Volker's score, the obvious choice for The Banshees of Sheeran, a film that takes place in the early 1920s in Ireland, would of course been early 20th century Irish music. That was something that Burwell had actually raised with director Martin McDonough, who then told him how much he hated that idea. Instead, we get a sort of fairy tale sound that plays with the childlike nature of Colin Farrell's main character, particularly with the harp and celeste, and then has a, a deeper, more mysterious, rumbling backdrop through, oddly enough, an Indonesian gamelan. There is a constant darkness throughout, especially early on when we see Farrell's character being so happy and upbeat, and then this darkened edge foreshadows that the whole film isn't exactly going to be happy. And it does balance a, a beauty of a fable aspect and also a really sense of melancholy as the film tracks this journey of decay across the Isle of Inishirin. Moving away from the awards nominees, Abel Korzeniowski had two really good scores this year, and that's after he'd been quiet for a while. 
prior to October, he hadn't released the score since March 2021, I think it was The Courier, and then his prior score was all the way back in August 2018 with The Nun. I'm not sure why he's been quiet, but suddenly he comes back with back-to-back -back great scores in back-to-back -back months. The first was Till, which was really, really powerful, and this tells a story that I really wasn't sure how it would play out because I think it's so easy to make it exploitative. Part of the success, I think, is because of Korzeniowski's score. It treats it not surprisingly with such a respect, but also isn't afraid to dip into the power underlying it and the, the bubbling tumult that's ready to unfurl. At times, it really manifests itself into a sort of orchestral storm. It's beautiful, it's stunning, it shakes you. And the other score that he did was Emily, one that I'll be much quicker about. I think it's a little bit strange, a little bit more experimental. One that, whenever I hear it, makes me maybe draw some Philip Glass corollaries with its minimalism and its repetition. For whatever reason, a, a score that caught attention with more niche fans, but really didn't catch hold too well. Going in a completely different direction is Ben Lovett's score for Hellraiser. And I actually interviewed Ben and released that interview on Devil's Night, which I thought was particularly appropriate. Doing a soft reboot or reimagining a remake, however they really want to frame Hellraiser, the 2022 version, it's difficult for a composer, and especially for a film like Hellraiser, where the original Chris Young score is so iconic. Easily one of the most memorable, most iconic horror scores of all time. How do you replicate that? What do you do? You take something like Sarah Shackner in Prey earlier in 2022, where... She repeats a couple statements from Alan Silvestri's score for the original Predator, but primarily does something different. And now the original Predator score doesn't have anywhere near the... I hate to use it again. It's nowhere near as iconic as Chris Young's Hellraiser. But it's a known score. It's quite memorable. It's very good. And she went in a completely different direction. Here, Lovett kind of strikes a balance. So he does use Chris Young's main theme. We get snippets of it early on, and then later we finally hear it in its full glory. And I think holding it back, teasing us, was a really smart move, because when it does finally hit, it shocks you. And it's something you've been waiting for, and that reveal is powerful, and it's exciting, and it puts a smile on your face. But then he does a lot on his own as well. So he keeps Young's score and also deviates and makes things his own. And it's nice then, and it shouldn't be a surprise from someone like Ben Lovett, but it's nice that it isn't simply an imitation of Hellraiser, the original, without anything new. There's a lot new here, and there's a lot new to like. One of the maybe least surprising great scores of last year and of that period is Ludwig Goranz's score for Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. His score for the original Black Panther, also excellent, really, really highly regarded, a lot of attention, obviously did great at the awards, and so it surprises me that this one really didn't get as much of attention. 
and I know the film itself, while doing well, wasn't nearly the cultural event, particularly in the U.S., that the original was, but it still feels strange. I'll put it simply, it's a sick score. It's so cool. It's so fun. Gorenson has really mastered this style of doing more traditional film scoring techniques and sounds with some hip-hop elements, some more traditional elements representing the worlds of Wakanda and the Mesoamerican aspects that make their way into this entry. It's really exciting. It's fun. It has a, a rhythm and a, a beat that just drives you and infects you. And it's a great infection, by the way. And another score that I found really enjoyable, and yet oddly seemed to come and go, was Daniel Pemberton's score for Amsterdam. I think it's one of his best scores. It has a slight noiry mystery, inquisitive nature to it, but it's also really, really lovely. I don't know if it'll make my top ten, which in itself is sort of a fabrication. I don't believe in having a, a static list, and I don't even think it's really possible, but it's up there for sure. The problem is, and it's a problem that I think Pemberton has quite often, is it's a great score for a film that was very poorly received and bombed at the box office. One that maybe will have a revival one day, but unless it does, will probably be more or less forgotten. And as we often see, a score for a film that is forgotten normally means that the score itself is forgotten, or at least doesn't get the attention that it deserved. And another score that I really dug was Hildur Guthnadrodir's score for Tar. And now, bear with me before you turn this off and say I don't know what I'm talking about. I know that the film has effectively no audible score, but the score release, which is separate, is fascinating, and it feels almost like a deconstruction of film music. And part of that is, I think, the rough nature of it, as if you're sitting in on a recording session, hearing perhaps not the final project, but a rehearsal, an attempt, or an early idea that's being played out and toyed with, and there's the question lingering in this big room with musicians and composers and execs and whoever else of, is this going to work? Is this what we want? Do we want something else? Part of that as well is bolstered by snippets of dialogue because it's not like a dialogue sample from a film. It, it feels like you're just hearing parts of a conversation in that same room. It's a kind of look behind the curtain, but one that's completely fabricated. Very interesting. That said, it's unorthodox, it's experimental, and a lot of the music itself is built around droning cello, which, up my alley, but not for everybody. I think the release from this period that I've listened to the most, and it's not even the score, it's five iterations of the same track, is... Camille's release for Corsage, 
and it's actually Corsage colon She Was. It's an EP. I think it's the third track is the full song, and then there are one or two vocal variants, and then two or three experimentations with just the instruments. I think when I first heard it, I put it on repeat four times, five times. It helps that it's only ten minutes, but means I basically heard the same thing 20, 25 times, and I can't get enough of it. It strikes so deep into my heart, into my internal being, and, and creates an auditory interpretation of a woman's struggle. It's just fascinating. And I realize I am going really long. I have about 15 more scores that I want to talk about, and instead I'm basically just going to do a lightning round. So Reznor and Ross had two big scores this period, Bones and All and Empire of Light. I think the really notable one was Bones and All. It's touching, resonant, emotional, and for me, and especially when you get near the end and you hear the vocals from Trent Reznor, it's crushing. There's so much despair and longing and loss, and it creates a moment of positivity. It creates a nostalgia for that moment, and a knowledge and an acceptance that that moment is gone forever, and creates a reverence for it. And it's just truly, truly beautiful. The Menu by Colin Stetson, a first great film, also a very cool score, very cool hearing him do something that, in one sense, is a little more orchestral traditional, but unsurprisingly taken to bizarre realms. Ten Killer by Chatpile. Chatpile, I want to say it was their debut album, God's Country, came out early 2022. One of my favorite releases from last year. It's ugly, it's raw, and here they similarly create something that is just harsh, it's punishing, it's a bleak world. I'd likened it to being hit in the face with a slab of concrete. Not something that is necessarily appealing to everybody, but I love it. And frankly, it's the type of music that is so out there and so unique to this band that you probably won't hear anything like it again, at least not in a film score format. Nathan Johnson's score for Glass Onion had Nathan on the podcast on... Uh, the end of December, the 24th, actually. First, really fun movie. Had a great time in the theaters with this, but also an excellent score, bringing in some of the aspects from Knives Out, and then doing something completely unique and on its own. Similarly, Simon Franklin's score for Avatar The Way of Water does a great job using Horner's original themes and creating something new, something unique. I will say I have heard complaints that of people that think it relies too much on the original themes and doesn't do enough new. I don't know. I can see where it comes from. I can see the complaint. I'd have to listen to both of those back-to-back to really know and have a, a strong opinion. Not sure I'll do that. That's up to you, listener. Hilda had another great score of women talking. Danny Elfman came back with White Noise. Actually, Carter Burwell had another score. Catherine called Birdie, Alina Dunham movie. All a cappella, which was really cool, something that he told me he was really excited to do. She Said by Nicholas Bertel, The Sun by Hans Zimmer, a more restrained, emotional, minimal score than 
what we normally get from Hans. Chained to Dancy with Devotion made the Oscar shortlist. Really good, sort of adventurous, military-esque score without actually feeling like you're listening to propaganda or something that's so overtly reliant on military-styled, war-styled tropes that we're listening to. Rob Simonson's score for The Whale. This one took me a couple listens, but I think especially going into the mindset of how much it feels like they're creating a musical replica of a literal whale, the seaside, the ocean. Part of that is the, the mixing and recording techniques and not just Rob's music. It was really cool. And finally, Howard Shore's score for The Pale Blue Eye. Again, another really good one. Cool to see Shore have two very good scores this year, the other, of course, being Crimes of the Future, one of my favorites of the year. And, candidly, I have a list of many other scores that I thought were really good, but you don't want to hear me talk for an hour or two. If you do, well, thank you, I appreciate that, but skip to the beginning and listen all this over again. That should get you to uh, close to an hour, 45 minutes. Got another good interview coming out after this. I uh, doubled up at the end of the month. And then, of course, my episode of my favorite scores of the year as well. You might hear about one or two from this episode. You might not. Got you on the edge of the seat, though, right? Keep your ears out for that. Until then, enjoy. <laughs> 